I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. A crisis at the border. It's been repeated so often, most of us just take it as true. But as Supertramp asked on the cover of their 1975 album, Crisis? What crisis? Is there really a crisis? The 2020s are hardly the first time in American history there's been backlash against the others. People newly coming to the United States fleeing intolerable conditions in their homeland. During the First World War and into the 1920s, there was also a projection of crisis. The president and his administration spreading nativist fear and hate against new arrivals, those others. And a great deal of harm was done. Now closing the border, keeping them out, is seen as the most powerful issue as we head into the 2024 elections. The momentum is such that even congressional Democrats have now embraced the Republican position of shutting the border as ultra-high priority. Each wants to outdo the other in terms of walling off our southern border. But how much of this emotion-fueled sentiment is real and sensitive, and how much of it is simply racism uh, toward people of color from south of the border? As a letter in a recent New York Times noted, Congress is considering legislation that would revive failed policies that are inefficient, costly, and unjust, including mass detention, fast-track deportations devoid of due process. Such measures will only exacerbate chaos and dysfunction. End of quote from that letter. And as with so much of the Trump agenda, fear is the key motivator. Hate, of course, follows closely behind fear. Are there realistic alternatives? Well, maybe. Today, we're going to talk with John Washington, who's written in The Nation a piece called 11 Arguments for Open Borders. He argues, quote, a world not divided by militarized borders would help form a world where sustainability and justice take precedent over extraction and exploitation, end of quote. But is that at all realistic? Well, I can pretty much guarantee that everyone listening does have immigrant roots. But aren't we too full now? As a nation, don't we need to stop an invasion, a poisoning of the blood, as Hitler and Trump have argued? Stay tuned for what should be an interesting, eye-opening discussion. John Washington, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me on, Bert. John Washington is staff writer at Arizona Luminaria, where he writes about immigration and border politics, as well as criminal justice issues and the arts. He's also an award-winning translator. His most recent book, The Case for Open Borders, was published by Haymarket Books just recently. Good publisher and uh, published this year, 2024. He says, despite the fear-mongering, quote, open borders would be an economic, environmental, and ethical boon. Well, we're going to find out what he means. The fear of a pervious wall, a wall that's not sealed, never mind anything like an open border, is, as you note, it's, uh, the fear is of overcrowding, overrun public services, tanking economies, and generalized chaos. One doesn't hear a lot of counter-arguments these days, given that both political parties are falling all over themselves and looking tough on the border. You say, today's migrants are not threats to freedom, but much-needed threats to a global system of oppression. In their movement, they are freedom fighters. Whoa, that, could t- could that take could spark a lot of surprise and confusion. Please explain what you mean, John. That was a great intro to start with. Uh, you covered a lot of ground there. A couple of things I'm trying to do with this book is, one, dispel a lot of the myths that are often promulgated by both right and left about border immigration politics, And the other is to provide a positive vision, not just uh, a defensive posture of what people typically on the left don't want, but also actually what we do want. And just to have a more articulate and clear idea of exactly where we stand. Um, I'm not assuming everyone's going to agree with me, but I think that um, the right has done a much better job explaining their ultimate goal. Um, as impossible as I think it really is to close the border down or to uh, end migration as we know it. Um, But I don't think the left has done a great job articulating what they actually want. So, you know, you you talk about crisis. There has been this almost constant call of of crisis Mm -hmm. um, along the U.S.-Mexico border for, go back, 
Obviously, throughout the entire Biden administration, everyone on the right is saying that it's an, quote, open borders crisis, it's free-for-all, whatever. During the Trump administration, the term crisis was used a lot, both by Trump and both by people on the left, decrying Trump's tactics. I think, in some sense, everyone is right, and in some sense, everyone is wrong. There is a crisis, when you look at it from a human perspective, people, because of our incredibly militarized and fortified border people are in dire need of protection, of safety, of some easy and controlled organized form of transit and asking for protections or reuniting with their family. And they're being denied. They're being forced to take very dangerous uh, desert treks or fording the river. They drown. They die in a desert of the elements. They're imprisoned in immigration detention centers under absolutely horrendous conditions. There was a very recent report that showed the average use of solitary immigration detention facilities is about 30 days. That's twice mm. the what what is considered to constitute legitimate torture. All these cases, you know, I could go on and on. And I think in some regard, it's really important work to do, but it almost becomes something like trauma porn of what a lot of migrants are, are suffering right now at the U.S.-Mexico border. Those are crises. Those are right. individual crises. And yet, what is not a crisis, and I think that serious people or people who have experience on the U.S.-Mexico border really do recognize is that people crossing the border is not a crisis. And because if you look at what's actually happening, the majority of folks who are getting across the border, either in Texas, across the river, or in Arizona and California, across the desert, across the border wall, are turning themselves in. They're looking for border patrol so they can file asylum claims. A lot of them are family. I've spent, I've been doing this for years, both as a reporter and in, in, in other regards. And I've never seen anything but just peaceable migrants crossing, dealing with just the difficult reality of walking a long way through mountains or across the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, you, you can paint it different ways if you want. If you see that folks, and this is typically because of Border Patrol policy, that they make them uh, discard most of their property, or because of immigration policy, um, depending on what sort of um, the, the, the manner in which you're crossing, you have to you end up having to leave a lot of your stuff behind. So some of these places are trashed, not because migrants are just you know really nearly just throwing crap on the ground, but because border patrol says take off this, take off this, take uh, off this, hmm. and they're not picking it up, or because people are forced to wait sometimes days, and so it's cold here in the desert right now. Sometimes it's rainy, and people like little fires so they can keep themselves warm. And the reason that they're doing that is because they are bottlenecked at the border, at the actual ports of entry. Right now, there are 1,450, 1,450 um, appointments for asylum that are permitted to be made every single day on the border. There are so many more people that need them, that are waiting for them, that wait months, sometimes more than six months. I've talked to people who've been trying every day to get an appointment for six months and they're not getting them. And that incentivizes folks to make these desperate and much more dangerous and disorderly crossings. I'm sort of giving a little bit of background by why it can feel like a crisis from one side when you're looking at the people and why it kind of isn't, or it's a self-created crisis because of the policies that are in place. And one other point about this terminology is the Republican Party especially has been just saying that it's absolute madness. We need to protect our, our border from a so-called invasion, mm-hmm. which it is this decidedly not an invasion. And yet when they get their wish list of demands, <laughs> um, as the Senate bill dropped uh, just a few days ago, this past Sunday night, when they get their wish list of demands, all of a sudden, where is the invasion? Because if they were to impose those policies, they would much further restrict Um, the number of people who are able to cross. They would detain more people. They'd be able to push more people back immediately. So if they really thought it was a a existential threat or this actual invasion that was happening, you would think they would have voted for the bill. But they didn't because it's political. Because it's all politics. It's all politics. 
Well, let's we should, we need to define terms. When you say mm. open borders, what what do you mean by open borders? What would that look like? It can look a lot of different ways. There's options here. One is to look at some examples that we already have in existence. One is the United States of America, the way that people cross from one legal jurisdiction to another. They have to register to vote in a new place, have to register with the DMV, get the new driver's license, you know, pay their local taxes, all of these other systems that are in place that um, in some ways there's a border around those jurisdictions. I mean, there's obviously state lines that are officially right. drawn. Right. Um, people don't have to register when they cross state lines. Um, so that might be a little bit different um, where perhaps when you are making that, 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 um, that change from say, I don't know, uh, uh, Virginia to Maryland or, um, you know, New Hampshire to Vermont, you would actually have to do apply and, and register, but you wouldn't be that, that movement wouldn't be denied you. Um, the European union, um, obviously they've, um, eradicated passport controls within the European union, but I think that also is another, and, you know, some people would disagree, but I think a lot of people, just if you back up and look at the, the big picture, it's been a pr pretty successful model. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, some people say, oh, well, actually not. And, you know, all of Brexit, really, that whole fight was predicated on supposedly the EU being this failed migrant attraction or whatever. One of the interesting things, though, and this is just, I, I, you know, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm like playing a gotcha card here, but I think it's just really revealing is that Brexit really was 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 motivated. The Brexiteers were motivated by anti-immigrant slogans, oh, yes. and much of it was false. They said that we're going to protect our, you know, welfare state. We're going to protect our medical care. We're going to protect our country from this. They were using terms like invasion as well. What happened is that in the years immediately following Brexit, more people migrated to the UK. So it didn't work. Oh, and, and, and it, Yeah. And so I'm going to get back to the vision of open borders in a second, but I think one of the other really important piece of this conversation is the inevitability of, of human mobility. People will move, they are moving, and they have always moved. All of the deterrence efforts that you can look at in history have failed. Walls fail, uh, immigration enforcement fails. You know, it, it, it slows down people or it diverts people. It makes things more dangerous. It changes the way people move, but it doesn't change the very basic. That's one of the key reasons I think we should really think hard about not trying to stop people from moving because evidence shows that we really can't, but how to organize and welcome the, the movement of people. And so, yeah, this idea of this, this open borders future, um, you know, I personally am, am not a proponent of a no borders future. I think that is a little bit untenable right now. Um, it's an interesting conversation to have. We've got to get into the, some of the differences there. But I think that doing some sort of regulatory um, check and um, registration makes a lot of sense. And I think it's actually healthier for um, the existent body politic, and I think it's healthier for the migrant themselves. Because trying to block people, what that does is actually what the people who are anti-immigrant right now are supposedly scared of. It attracts people to get across the skirt any form of registration, and we actually, in those cases, don't know who's in our country. If we welcome people but ask them to register, we yeah. would know who is in our country. And it does seem, it seems really clear that the vast majority uh, want to do it legally. They want to come in, they want to do it legally. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Washington, who's written in The Nation and other places as well, uh, a piece called 11 Arguments for Open Borders. And open borders is not no borders. I think it's important to point that out. And it's related to a book he has written that just came out, published by Haymarket Books, The Case for Open Borders. And you point out that militarized borders are a relatively recent thing. Uh, and I, I'm reminded of that wonderful movie from 1938, the classic The Grand Illusion, where people fleeing uh, from a, an army in the First World War uh, 
cross over this illusory border and suddenly they're safe. But borders are now backed up by heavily armed police with razor wire, whatever. Uh, but borders are relatively recent human inventions. When did fences and walls at the border begin? Uh, I don't know that movie. I'm going to have to oh, check it out. Oh, you must Thank, check it out. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the recommendation. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it obviously depends a lot on, on what borders we're talking about. But there's a really interesting history of the United States-Mexico border here, um, probably what a lot of the, a lot of the readers or sorry, listeners are, are most interested in. Um, the very first fencing that went up along the U.S.-Mexico border um, was cattle fencing. And there was some uh-huh. uh, effort to keep cattle on either side on their respective ranches. Um, the first sort of um, federal border uh, closure that demarcating not just uh, like for, for cattle, but for actual people was very close to where I am right now. It was um, in Nogales, and it was the only land battle in North America of World War One. It was like a 12 hour skirmish wow. where there was a. A, 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 a mis- case of mistaken identity. A Mexican man crossed the border. He didn't want to get checked. There was this fear at the time that the Germans were going to invade right. through Mexico, right. or they were going to in, like try to get Mexico into the into the war, and that would they would take back some of their territory. Right. It was just like um, very heightened tensions. Someone crossed. There was a there was a couple people who were killed and a lot of uh, gunfire. And after that, they built a temporary. Um, short wall it would expand like only a few hundred yards from that point until really the late 80s and 90s we saw no actual infrastructure along the u.s mexico border there was ports of entry that were kind of guarded and they had like you know fences that extended in either direction a little bit but no real substantial border wall um that changed really um in the 90s there's a series of of measures um proposed by Border Patrol and picked up by by Congress that started fencing off parts of the border. And this was part of a bigger objective to funnel folks into uh, more dangerous crossing areas. And the idea was that if if people, if they made it more dangerous, or in fact, and they knew this, and this was actually written into the policy more deadly, then people would sort of uh, hear about that and decide not to cross. Where have we I've heard that mentioned. very recently? <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, and I, I mentioned, too, this inevitability of people crossing. Right. Of course, it didn't stop him. It only made it more dangerous. And so since then, the border wall has both extended in length and extended in height in fits and starts. Um, right now, a pretty big portion of um, my, my, my current state, Arizona, is walled off. Um, lots of California is... Um, big chunks of New Mexico. Texas is a different issue. Texas uh, is harder to wall off because of the river. Um, Certainly people are trying. There's been these efforts of, um, you know, private walls. Um, Abbott, you know, Governor Abbott right now is laying out miles and miles of razor wire. Um, Even those, even those buoys um, blocking the river, which, which is a violation of international law. He had to remove those. And it also, you know, killed people. That, that was that was uh, very clear. The number of people drowned just that directly because of those those buoys. Yeah. So you know, this is the, the history of the U.S. Mexico actual infrastructural wall. In in, in short, so, and I do find it interesting. You talk about barbed wire, and barbed wire is a key component, really, to keep cattle on this side or the other side mm-hmm. is kind of a key component of uh, what the United States is as opposed to what it was before the white Europeans got here. There wasn't right. barbed wire. They, they didn't, the idea of breaking up the land like that uh, is something that I believe was foreign to the uh, indigenous population. Of the right. 11 points, your second point goes to the one about the pervasive and illusory fears driving the so-called crisis at the border, and that is that fear of immigrants stealing jobs. So it's not only your word, but the Bush administration's Department of Labor also did a study of this matter. What did they find about immigrants stealing jobs? What does immigration mean for economic growth or contraction? Not only the Bush administration, the Trump administration had a study about the effect of of the influx of asylum seekers on local economies. They 
didn't really talk much about that study. They tried to bury it because what it showed was that asylum seekers uh, resettling in different communities were was actually a very good thing for the economy. And that went pretty counter to a, a lot of the rhetorics founding out of the president and you know his his, his acolytes or whoever. Yeah. Um, you know, study after study after study shows that migration is not an, a threat to the economy writ large. Um, there, you can look at different ways. You can look. There's different ways you can look at it. One is, what is the effect on wages? And you know, there's dozens and dozens of economic studies showing that actually, um, even relatively large amounts of migration doesn't affect wages very much. If it affects it at all, it's almost always a net positive. Mm-hmm. Um, on employment too, and this is one of the things that is one of the more contentious pieces of this or is more commonly used to try to deny further immigration. Actually, employment too is positively affected, but not hugely affected. It's not a major shift. And and that seems almost counterintuitive. But the problem here is that I think the way that people think about job markets is there is not a fixed amount of jobs in any, especially right. national economy. Mm-hmm. Jobs, many cases, they get further jobs. Um, the, the economists, this is like classic, like economics 101. People get that, but if you don't study it, you might be forgiven for thinking that if someone takes this job, I'm not going to have it anymore. Um, but that's just not the way that it works. And even with, and there's been a, so many studies that have looked at these moments in history where a lot of people have migrated, uh, very quickly to even just a specific city. And what's happened in those cities is that, um, if they were, especially especially if they were allowed to work, and even if they weren't, they would, in, in, in which case they would find black market jobs. Mm. It didn't hurt the uh, uh, employment rate. It really just didn't. So just, you know, if, if you're having this contentious fight with someone who disagrees with you and you just start Googling around or whatever, looking at serious um, economic studies, it's pretty much 100% um, pushing for, yeah, it actually overall, it's a, it's a net positive. And on the... On, on a bigger economy scale, economic scale as well, there's a, a really interesting study by uh, Michael Clemens who tried to think about what would happen if all borders and all barriers to migration were removed throughout mm. the world. Mm-hmm. And his estimate that there would be, I think, a 100% increase in the global GDP. So the, the title of his study was called something like Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. because just like, no. there's... There's money to be had if you, uh, you know, liberalize migration policies. But and I I say all this and I think that another key point that I want to make is that you can make this argument. And because it's it's the right argument to make um, just in terms of dollars and cents. But I hesitate to lead with it because the problem right now with immigration politics really and immigration enforcement is that we are commodifying people and we are uh-huh. commodifying migrants. The border is used as an economic tool. That's 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 one of the major effects that it has. Because of the border right now on the U.S.-Mexico border, we are able to have um, people toiling in factories and maquiladoras or basically in sweatshops in northern Mexico making goods that will be sent back to the United States. And they're paid less. They have less worker protections. They have less worker rights. Um, union, union, unionization rates at some of these plants are even lower than they are in the United States, and they've been dropping in the past decades in Mexico. The reason corporations are able to make money off of having of doing this, like near sourcing or outsourcing mm-hmm. of this labor, is because of the border. If we didn't have the border there, and folks were able to migrate where they wanted, and there weren't these disparate um, wages and and worker protection laws, then corporations would be out some bucks, but those people wouldn't be living in those dangerous conditions, gaining poverty wages, and you know suffering for so they can make us our televisions that we're watching. Yeah, and, and, on. and it t- it takes a lot to get people to move. People got to be pretty desperate to give yeah. up their homes, and yes. and if if they're making decent wages, uh, they're less likely to move. And that brings up the question of uh, the Rust Belt. 
they, 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 the Midwest, the economy is suffering in Midwest, and they tend to be enthusiastic, the most enthusiastic Trump supporters, which is why it's called the Rust Belt, because the economy is suffering there. They're furious with the idea of immigrants draining government coffers. Does immigration, how does immigration actually affect that region? Wouldn't curtailing Im- immigration actually be to the Rust Belt's benefit or what how, how does immigration affect that area really i mean aside from the myths the easy myths what's the reality yeah that, that, that's a really good question i grew up um in cleveland and sort of between cleveland and pittsburgh so um you can't get much more rust belt than that um there's a a new part of town outside cleveland um that's referred to as the steel yard and it was the site of what used to be an actual steel factory and now is a super target a uh i can't remember what chain of of um like uh movie theater is there and you know just a bunch of stupid box stores what happened to the rust belt if you look at the steepest dive in employment and layoffs and outsourcing um in that region was nafta 1994 was the free trade agreement was signed between Canada, United States, and Mexico that basically erased all tariffs from any trade in goods between those countries, let capital flow more easily, Mm -hmm. but did not allow people to flow. Mm -hmm. Um, That was timed identically, I mean, the the exact time with, you know, some of the things that we were talking about earlier with the rise in further border walls with that policy I, I, I mentioned about pushing people out towards the desert called prevention through deterrence. So, the reason that there was a boom in, just to take one industry as an example, in the Mexican auto industry in the late 1990s and early 2000s was because of NAFTA. Those jobs that were previously in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and elsewhere in, in that area went to Mexico. Right. So that wasn't immigration that caused the Rust Belt to really start rusting. It was uh, anti-immigration. Those jobs, I, I I don't know if they're ever coming back, maybe in, in some way, but maybe there's chance for other types of employment. But the the real threat is not the figure of the migrant in this case. It's the figure of the, the corporate or the corporate lobbyist who is trying to undercut the, the employment rates in, or is effectively undercutting the employment yes. rates in, in Ohio and shipping them elsewhere. And, you know, that is just one of many industries we can we can see that that pattern following um i get the angst you know i have plenty of family members and plenty of friends whose dads worked in the steel industry or in auto manufacturing in there and the you know the the ire is real i mean people are pissed and people don't have much hope and it's easy to scapegoat someone who is far away someone who looks differently than you and someone who's already being piled upon by politicians it's really um, a mistargeting of the problem and a misunderstanding of the problem. And that, you know, we, if we could create some sense of cross-border solidarity, if we didn't incentivize uh, these corporations to use much cheaper labor and much more dangerous labor, then I think we could kind of think about some sort of, uh, you know, rebalancing. Well, there's the whole... I know a crazy concept of having the government work for the good of the average person, not be enthralled to the corporations. What a concept. I don't know. That's a little (laughs) What about entitlements, welfare and social security? Aren't immigrants an additional drain on this? Not at all. Um, You know, most welfare benefits, none of the migrants who are crossing right now are eligible will be eligible anytime soon. And for many of them, for many of the benefits, they will never be eligible. So, um, you know, to get Social Security, you have to be a citizen. Right. Um, you, the people who are crossing right now, the Venezuelans, Haitians, Cubans, and Nicaraguans who are getting paroled in, there is currently no path for them to gain citizenship ever. That could change. I think it should change. But right now, these people are getting work permits relatively quick compared to the other group of people I'm going to talk about in a second. They're going to be paying in. They're going to be paying taxes. They're going to be paying property taxes. They're going to be paying into Social Security. They have an individual tax identification number, I-10. They're never on 
you know, the books going to be receiving any of that. Um, and so th- those are the people who have been paroled in. The people who are coming in and asking for asylum, um, who are skirting the, the ports of entry because they can't get through them, and coming in and asking for asylum because of a ban that's put in place under the Biden administration um, after the end of Title 42, which we can get into if you want, they have no pathway to asylum. Right. They can f- achieve some lesser form of protection called withholding of removal or, or CAT, Convention Against Torture. Neither of those provide pathways towards citizenship. So none of those people are going to become citizens. So we're not going to be under threat of them gaining mm. um social security benefits second is what we're really doing is we're creating a second tier of residents we're creating a a a potentially Mm. permanent underclass right now Mm. like what sort of society do we want to live in where we know these people are going to be here you know we've had uh, the number of undocumented migrants in the united states has held steady now for well over a decade 11 plus million people um that number may rise a little bit they're they're here it, it's, it's actually practically logistically impossible to deport them. So we're just okay as a society with having a just second tier of, 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 of non-citizens of people who live here. I mean, that is a, a question I think um, needs to be kind of, we need to confront, but let's get back to welfare for a second. So um, even if you are on some path towards citizenship, if you come here as through a family reunification or a, mm-hmm. you know green card lottery visa, you have to pay in at least five years, and in, 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 in most cases, actually far longer than that, before you can receive any of the sort of SNAP benefits or these like food stamp type things. Some people might quibble here and say, well, they can go to the emergency room and they won't be turned away. Uh, I think that's in all of our interest. Um, we don't want people bleeding out in parking lots. Mm-hmm. Um they can, you know, potentially receive um, public education if their kids are going to schools, if they have kids and they send them to schools. Um, this is also true. They use roads, as everyone else does. And that is true with, with, with you know, some families, especially when some families come over, sometimes um, on these individual family-based um, cases, there is um, a almost even or sometimes even um a net loss in, according to, uh, if you're looking at state um, benefits, if you think about education, but in all of those cases, if the children grew up in public education system and they go to school and they get jobs in a generation, in a single generation, they're going to be paying in much further, much more into the welfare system than they than they have previously taken out. There's studies that also show, and this doesn't apply only to the United States, but the UK and a number of other different countries that actually native-born people use welfare benefits um, on average far higher than than immigrants. Um, you know, I, I think kind of looking at these. Well, what if we what if we were somehow able to completely block them? Like what if we were able to mm-hmm. keep them out of our schools or somehow not let them come into our emergency rooms? What are we going to be dealing with? So again, I go back to the idea that people are here, people are going to come here. We're not going to be able to keep them out. So now that they're here, do we really want for these potentially millions of people to not get an education? Do we want them to have underlying and unaddressed health care issues that are going to compound themselves and get worse and eventually need some some serious attention or they'll die, what, alone in the streets. You know, if we don't pay in to, to these people just out of the decency of our hearts or the common good and our future, you know, communities, we're going to have uneducated, um, sick folks who are going to be here and they're going to need some help eventually so invest in 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 decency i think up front and we'll have a more stable healthier and more educated workforce down the road that is going to be paying into our welfare system that is going to be you know fulfilling key jobs for which there are are enormous vacancies right now that are going to be taking care of a you know a, a population that's getting older and older and if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Washington, who's written a piece in The Nation magazine called 11 Arguments for Open Borders. It's related to his new book, The Case for Open Borders, published by Haymarket Books just recently. And on the issue of crime, you know, if people are desperate, 
they do crime. If they're denied education, denied skills, denied jobs, of course, they get desperate. And Trump, Trump began his 2016 campaign focusing on stopping immigration. They bring crime and drugs, and he said, with specific intent, clearly, of stoking fear and hate. Your fourth of 11 points is that borders don't stop crime and violence. They engender crime and violence. What is the truth? How has enforcement actually affected crime? Right. So, again, looking at the numbers, you see that immigrant communities commit less crimes generally than uh, native communities. There are exceptions, of course, and uh, people make a big deal out of them who don't want migrants to come here. I mean, in any population of any people, you're going to have folks who are doing harm to others. That's just the way that humans live and work and are. Um, But as on the whole, they commit less crimes. So there's a couple of ways I think bordering and anti-immigration politics actually engender crime. One is that um, labeling migration as a crime. The number of people who are prosecuted in federal court because of immigration violations has skyrocketed in the past 30 years. There was under a thousand people prosecuted for federal immigration violations in the 1980s. Um, I think last year or the year before, there was like 120,000. So we are calling it a crime and prosecuting as a crime and paying for it as a crime. I mean, that literally like it costs money to take someone to court, costs money to prosecute someone, costs money to detain them for crossing a border. So that's one obvious way that it engenders crime. Another one is, you know, and a lot of uh, the mayors in some of these big cities in New York and in Chicago Recently, Mayor Adams is, is is talking about this immigrant crime wave. Um, I think it's really, really shameful rhetoric. There is not a legal way for any of these people, with a few exceptions of, of some of the parole issues that I talked about earlier, to legally work. So you're literally pushing them into the black market. Or if they're completely obeying the law, they're going to be relying on what? On handouts, on government subsidies, on local government to help them, or on family members. Why don't we let them work? That's what most of them are here to do, or, you know, in combination with fleeing for, from whatever, right. uh, you know, push them away from their home countries in the first place. But of course they want to work. I mean, you, people want autonomy. People want to have that, uh, you know, freedom to do what they please, and they go towards opportunity. And if we deny it, we're going to push them into the black market or push them to make rash or desperate decisions. Another really, really important thing here is that um, one basic fact to dispel is that migrants are not the people bringing the drugs across the U.S.-Mexico border right now. It's well into the high 90s of the percentage of fentanyl is crossing through ports of entry, and the people who are taking it through ports of entry are U.S. citizens. When we crack down on the border, when we make the border this militarized Mm -hmm. zone where it's harder for people to cross. People now turn themselves in or forced to turn themselves into human smugglers. These are commonly called the cartels in Mexico. When I first started doing this work, when I was first starting to interview people and understand what was going on here, I would hear folks all the time say, yeah, I got caught by the border patrol and then I decided I was going to try again. I took like a taxi, like three miles west of downtown Morales, and I walked for three days by myself with a group of people. That is impossible now. There may be very few cases where very enterprising people can figure out some way to get across themselves, but almost 100% of the people who are crossing the border have to submit themselves into the hands of human smugglers who are not just mm-hmm. smuggling human beings, but they're also trafficking drugs, they're also sometimes kidnapping people, they're also committing horrific crimes. The reason that they're, they have that control is because they realize that it was an opportunity. If people can't find a legal way to cross or find a safe way to cross, they're going to have to go further and further out. And the smuggling operations have benefited from that. That is, it is a huge boon to the smuggling operations. This is why the cartels have been able to proliferate as they have over past years because of this crackdown on immigration. Also because of our incredible and seemingly insatiable hunger for right. illicit drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's another serious way that has been a, a huge moneymaker for cartels is the border militarization on the U.S. side. Well, it's like 
prohibition of alcohol was great for the bootleggers. They didn't want it. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. the same kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. your fifth point is immigrants don't threaten communities, they revitalize them. Um, you say when migrants arrive to a community, crime rates drop, property values jump, and neighborhoods get a shot of cultural energy and economic vitality. Say more about that, please. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's been these small cases in, in relatively small cities in um, on the East Coast and, again, in the Midwest, where these cities are kind of like emptying out. And an influx of migrants has actually uh, been really good for the vibrancy of the community. There's been um, people to fill some jobs, people to create jobs, because there's families here that need all the things and all the stuff that they want to buy that anyone who's living is going to be looking after. So they have been like a, a shot in the arm for some of these small communities. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes I'm, it's a challenge yeah. though, right away. I mean, here, here's a question relating to the assertion that immigrants are a boon to the community. My, my sister is very liberal, enthusiastically anti-Trump, wonderful person, not that I'm biased. She's in a, a, a town in Massachusetts, and she's been very active in helping com- the community welcome refugees for a few years, even setting up sanctuary. But she told me that suddenly there are 30 new Haitian families in that town. It's not a big town who speak only Creole. Uh, they don't speak Spanish or English, um, but they're being put up in hotels at government expense, of course. It, it, she's she's a little bit flustered by it. It seems to be a burden on the town. Your thoughts, please. Well, um, I, I have a lot of thoughts here. Uh, thanks for bringing this case up, and also thanks to your sister uh, for the work that she's been doing. Indeed. Um, you know, I, I don't know the exact particulars of, of that case, obviously, or which town it is, but um, the way that it works in most places in the United States is there is some funding for um, some of the early stages of resettlement. Um, and that can be done, it is sometimes done on the local level, but a lot of the, the money comes from FEMA. Um, the FEMA budget for this exact work of helping to resettle recent arrivals of asylum seekers was $110 million last year. Some of that went to the community where I am right now. Um, most people who are coming here are staying for a few days and moving on. So there is some uh, stays in a hotel for a few nights, but it doesn't usually last. Uh-huh. So 30 people or so, or a number of families um, from Haiti, I wonder exactly where those funds are coming from. Um, $110 million, it's not nothing for sure. But I mean, just think about the big picture budget of the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. the military budget of the United States uh-huh. last, last year was approaching a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars. So $110 million is literally a drop in the bucket just compared to that one thing. I mean, uh-huh. the, the entire U.S. budget was in the five or six trillion dollar range. But I can still get that it, it can be hard. There is a transition period. There is a period of assimilation. These people will learn English. Um, they speak Haitian Creole now. If they stay there and if they're not um, marginalized, but mm-hmm. if they're welcomed in the community, they're going to learn English relatively quickly, especially if they have kids. I'm sure they, I'm guessing that they do. Another huge thing to think about here is the particulars of Haitian migrants. And this is another sort of big picture push I would make. And I think a lot of people do for open borders. Why are Haitians fleeing right now? What what is the history there? You can go and, you know, we could spend hours just in this topic, but the United States has invaded Haiti I think it's six times, maybe seven times in the last 100 years. Um, we actually uh, were running, we're in and controlling that country for 15 years, starting in the early 20th century. Right now, um, there is a basically a foreign government with a puppet leader that is more or less sponsored by the United States. The United States mm-hmm. has invaded the country, has been involved in a coup in the country in this century, in the early 2000s, right now, and this is mind-boggling. I honestly like don't even quite get it. It's it is very complicated. But you know who's right now, like in these very days, thinking of coming to Haiti with a uh, a military component, the country of Kenya. What like, what is Kenya's objective in Haiti? And of course, what it is is it's more or less um, compelled by the United States. The United States are trying to get Ken to send in this this military sort of uh, 
I don't know, law, peacemakers or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, Canada didn't have the stomach for it. No surprise. They got <laughs> Kenya to do it. So, and you know, there's, there's an e- enormous earthquake. The UN basically was occupying the country for over a decade. There was an enormous cholera up- outbreak because yeah, of that. Yeah. It's like, I mean, are, are you, if there's any country in this hemisphere, maybe in the world that we owe more welcome to is the people of Haiti. Uh-huh. Um, CBP also is on the island of Hispaniola right now. They have been elemental in trying to block the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, so, you know, just the, the, the way that we've been um, castigating, have been exploiting, have been dominating that nation. I mean, you know, and we haven't even mentioned like the whole French debt. They were the, you know, the first black Republic and they were, France made them pay debts for like a hundred years. And just like, we've like taken, like, coming, we have come together as the, the global North and immiserated that country yeah. for centuries. Yeah. So yeah, there's going to be some people who, who need to flee. And I think the, the, the little that we can do is offer them, you know, a, a little transition period and some nights in a hotel before they kind of can get on their own feet as long as we give them work permits right like we have to it has to be there has to be a change boy and you talk about um, the misery component uh wow i mean does does it get worse than haiti if so i don't want to know yeah my yeah. goodness and as you've pointed out many u.s cities like st louis detroit philadelphia cleveland baltimore buffalo new orleans pittsburgh newark milwaukee to be specific have been emptying out in recent decades and you say that rural counties currently have fewer residents than they had in 1950. We know what it looks and feels like. How might new immigrants uniquely serve to revitalize and rejuvenate these now depressed community spirits? There was an interesting book. I disagree with a lot of its takes, but I, I like the title, actually. And um, it, it was a little provocative uh, by this book by Matthew Iglesias called One Billion Americans. And he was making the argument that we should have we should aim for that population. Um, I bet you a lot of people don't have the stomach for that, or it sounds a little scary, but per square mile, like the, the density, the population density of the United States is so small compared to every single country in Europe and compared to many, many other countries um, throughout the world that not having enough room is not a problem. Right. Um, in fact, in, in, in many ways, and you're, you're, you're starting to allude to it with the question, the opposite of the problem and here, again, I want to like say that this isn't why we should do migration. I think we should do migration because it's the moral and open migration because it's the moral and ethical thing to do. But it's also going to be a benefit for, for people who are non-migrants living in the United States. Um, there's enormous shortages in a number of industries in teaching and construction. There's a recent uh, study that found there's over half a million empty construction jobs throughout the nation. Um doctors, nursing, there's an enormous, almost critical nursing shortage. An easy way to fill that is, a quick way to fill that is to let people in and let them work. And and there is that desire for it. It's, you know, a a lot of people think of new migrants, that they're going to be the ones out there in the fields picking the tomatoes or whatever. But that is the case. But they do all sorts of other jobs as well. Um, you know, the like the Fortune 500 companies, I think over half of them in the United States were started by immigrants. Um, they not only fill jobs, but they employ people, including native people. Um, so, yeah, they're, 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 they have been a vitalizing force and they will continue to be. I, I do find it. You're, you're bring, reminding me. I have a uh, former neighbor, a Republican, who was very much uh, against immigration. But when he needed some work done, it was. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah. Of course, it was outside work. It just the hypocrisy mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Your yep. point number seven out of eleven is open borders don't mean a rush to migrate. There's a trumped-up fear of more immigrants with dark skin as an invading force if the drawbridges are lifted up and the borders are somehow open. What's the real truth about this? Wouldn't there be a rush to migrate if it's more open? There probably would be some increased migration, sure. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not delusional. I think if you, there's a lot of people who want to get in right now mm-hmm. and can't. And just go to northern Mexico and you see that there's a lot of people who are waiting. Um, but there have been these studies that have, um, or these surveys rather that have asked how many folks throughout the world, I'm a little bit skeptical, like how they can really get a good sense of that. Cause there's just so much diversity wherever you go. Um, how many people, if they could would migrate 
and where they would migrate to. And um, there was a relatively high portion that said they would migrate, and amongst those, a lot of people would migrate to the United States. But just taking those numbers, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head what it was, just taking those numbers, um, it, we, if we took in all of those people, which would not happen, and I'll explain why in a second, um, the United States still would not be overrun. That those numbers would be, we would be able to absorb relatively easily. There'd be, you know, some intervening years, but these, like the example with your sister, there might need to be some welcoming um, period. But people would figure it out, and we have the entire history of the United States to prove that. Um, you know, there was fifty some million people who migrated from Europe over like a seventy-five year period in the United in U.S. history. Um, that that worked out okay, you know, uh, more or less. Um, so, but really, folks don't want to move very far, and we have um, a, an abundance of evidence about this. Um, a lot of people in Europe and also in the United States are now crying foul that so many African migrants are are overrunning parts of Europe. You know, in quotes, overrunning parts of Europe, or now all of a sudden coming to the United States. Actually, ninety percent of all African refugees are in Africa. By far, the most people, the, 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 the place most people go when they need to flee a country is the neighboring country. Um, one of the highest receiving countries of refugees in the world is Uganda. Another is Kenya. Another is Colombia in South America. People are, you know, again, nervous about so many Venezuelans coming to the United States. Over the last 20 years, less than a million Venezuelans have come to the United States. Over the past, like, Seven years, over three million Venezuelans have gone to Colombia. It's a lot closer. They can keep an eye on their home country, so maybe they could return. Some of their family members probably stayed back, so they didn't want to go too far. They're more culturally similar. Obviously, they're more linguistically similar. People would settle out, I think, and would disperse, but not all people would disperse in the same direction or the same place. So I think that, you know, just looking at where people are going now is very telling and I think would allay some of those fears that everyone's going to come to the United States. Not everyone wants to come to the United States. That's just, that's just not true. Um, there are some uh, special relationships that we have with countries, countries mm -hmm. that we've destabilized like Haiti, mm -hmm. like El Salvador, like Guatemala, like mm -hmm. Mexico, whatever. Uh, a lot yes, of those people have. have some sort of ties and have some reason to come to the metropole that has been, you know, uh, squeezing their people dry for a long time. But overall, on a, in a global picture, it's not all folks are going to concentrate in, in Berlin and D.C. or something like that. That's just not, not the case. Yeah, it's not going to happen. People want to go all different places. That's what happens. Yeah. And I, Paul Krugman is not in power, but I thought it was interesting <laughs> that he reinforced your ninth point, which is that opening borders is economically smart. He wrote that in the New York Times, the negative views of the economics of immigration are all wrong. He says a rapidly expanding U.S. labor force brings down inflation. Hello, it actually works. <laughs> then there's the climate crisis. I don't think we still have some ground to cover. I don't think anybody ever links the climate crisis in the same breath that they think of the immigration situation. As you say, major world powers now spend significantly more on border enforcement than decarbonization or mitigation yeah. efforts. For sure, that's true. You assert that open borders are an urgent response to the climate crisis. Do tell, please, how is opening borders an essential step not only toward keeping people safer, from the accumulating disasters, where they are accumulating, but also to find a collective solution. Please explain. Well, we, we have to look beyond our own borders uh, to really have any hope of solving is maybe not the right word, but mitigating the effects of the climate crisis. Um, you know, I, so many folks, especially on the right, but not exclusively say, well, why should we stop <laughs> polluting so much when China and India are polluting right, so much right. more at this point. It was like, we can't only think of the climate solution in terms of our national borders. If we do, we're going to just barrel even faster towards, you know, the next major catastrophe. Um, so, you know, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. The climate knows no borders. Mm -hmm. So why would we think we could understand the climate within a border? Um, and, you know, opening the borders in terms of climate migration, um, I think is a solution to climate migration. I don't think it would have that much of an effect on the climate 
uh, overall. But, you know, if you were able to regulate, if we're able to work with countries like Brazil, who have been deforesting for a long time, if we're able to maintain the health of ecosystems across the border, um, and that, you know, is a really important thing, just thinking about like the Amazonian rainforest again, like if only Ecuador is going to start trying to solve the problem or stop right. deforesting in Brazil and Peru aren't, where does that really get us? They have to work together. I, I've been doing some reporting here in Southern Arizona about jaguar and wolf reintroduction. Mm. And it is absolutely critical for both of those animals who, this is their natural habitat in Southern Arizona. This is actually where jaguars first evolved. That if we lock them out by a border wall, which we've done in some areas, then they will not be able to cross. They will not be able to live. There is not enough uh, space for them to have enough genetic diversity on one or the other side of the border wall. And you think that's, oh, it's like a sad thing. They're like an amazing species or something. They're beautiful animals. But it actually is more than just losing a single animal, more than losing a single animal in a certain spot. It really affects the entire ecosystem. This idea of the apex predator the health of the apex predator implies the health of the all of the like underlying habitat and vice versa. So you have to make sure that these ecosystems have open corridors if they're going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. But going back to people, again, I, I think about it through the alternative. People are moving because of migration right now. Um, I've spoken with plenty. I've seen the effects of climate change in Honduras and Guatemala myself. Um, there are huge swaths that are facing serious drought, and there's been catastrophic hurricanes that have that devastated parts of those countries. If we don't let people out, if we try to wall off those storms and try to say, well, we're going to put a sealed border on this around these people who have no longer sustainable agriculture and are threatened by rising seas or you know devastating droughts, what are we doing? We're trapping people into their starvation, like. How is that possibly an answer that we're considering? And again, I go back one more time to this idea of inevitability. They're going to get out. So we can try to steal them off for a while. It's going to create a political powder keg within that country. It's going to you know, spur further the rise of authoritarianism and, and other oppressive you know, techniques. And there's going to be spillover. And those people are going to be even more desperate, even more urgent in, in all of their needs. And they're going to get here anyway. So, like, why spend the money? Like, as you referenced, eleven times more in a recent five-year period, the United States spent on border enforcement than in climate change mitigation. That's oh, backwards. Yeah, there's a good plan for you. That's sure likely to work. Uh, I want to get back to one final point, as as you say, in regard to their in in their movement. Uh, they are freedom fighters. Today's migrants are not a threat to freedom. They're much needed threats to the global system of oppression. How are they freedom fighters? I think of the folks I've met who have gone through such difficult journeys, who have traveled thousands of miles, sometimes with their children, um, desperately fleeing, have navigated and dealt with being kidnapped, have avoided or been subjected to robberies, rape, potentials, potentially being killed, um, extorted by government officials. They get through all of that. And then they hit this, this, this wall, this, like, this, this incredible force of the most powerful country on earth trying to keep them out, this like hateful rhetoric. And they get through it, and they get through it, and almost 100% of the time when I talk to these people, they somehow maintain their spirits. And it's inspiring to see these folks who have been through all of that, and yet their days, and when you spend time with them, when you are at the migrant shelters or at the wall talking to them, it's not just gloom and doom and misery and complaints. I mean, sometimes there's very real needs, but these people have positive hope and 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 visions for what they want to do and what they want their children to to be when they grow up and how they want to contribute to society and how excited they are and it's 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 truly inspiring to see that will and that human fortitude and i think that courage and so you know uh, calling them freedom fighters i mean they very much do not have weapons they're not you know on the attack or taking part in an invasion but they are going up against 
oppressive politics. And they're winning. They really are. I mean, people are getting through. And I think anytime they do, that is uh, a triumph of, of human spirit against incredible forces. Um, so that's, you know, one of the ways that I, I, I look at it. And, you know, maybe I'm a little bit loose with that terminology, calling them fighters, but it, it really, I think it, it connects to like all the attributes that I just mentioned are often how we speak about war heroes. Mm. And yet mm-hmm. these are people who are walking with a backpack of clothes and extra socks and a water bottle with their children on their shoulders. And, and, and they're able to, to do what seems impossible. Well, the current oppressive system of uh, and focus on closing the borders that both Republicans and Democrats have seemed to have bought into as the issue of 2024, it ain't working. There are other no. possibilities. That's what we try to do on this show, Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, his most... Re- uh, John Washington has been our guest. Uh, he wrote a piece in The Nation on this from his book, The Case for Open Borders, published by Haymarket Books just recently. It's so important to hear uh, uh, actual facts and, and, and the reality and, and not be bogged down by the uh, simplistic, incorrect myth. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for talking to me, Bert. Oh!